0: I think think in 20 20 to 40 40 years, years, in most most places where people have have good health health care, care. most most babies babies will be born born this way. way. Not Not all, people people will still get pregnant the old fashioned way. way. Out of of religious religious conviction, conviction, out of romantic romantic ideas, ideas. but I think think many many people will choose this path. How many, and why will they choose it? It's not that they want super babies. This will not give you super babies. This will not give you the X-Men or Superman or anything else. They want they healthy, want healthy, baby.
1: Thank you for joining the Transform I Am Possible, which is India's first Feature Tech podcast. And today, I'm super delighted to have with me Dr. Hank Greeley, who is the Dean F. and Kate Edelman-Johnson Professor of Law, professor by courtesy of genetics at Stanford University. He specializes in ethical, legal, and social issues arising from advances in genetics, neuroscience, and human stem research. And he has also authored books such as The End of Sex in the Future of Human Reproduction, plus the recently released CRISPR People, The Science and Ethics of Editing Units. Doctor, it's a pleasure and a complete honor to have you on the podcast. So, you know, we we are at a a cusp where humanity is completely going to be transformed. Blockchain, it's one of those technologies which can potentially transform the world by taking the middleman out of the picture. Genetics also can completely upend the healthcare industry, you know, possibly maybe even democratizing healthcare. Artificial intelligence, augmented reality, virtual reality all have similar capabilities. But, like I said, the general narrative in the public domain is that technology is a disruptor. Now, how much of invention and technology's adoption into society, plus the moral and ethical narratives which we all buy into, are peddled by capitalists for their personal agenda.
0: You're certainly right that we're in a period of remarkable change. And what I think is most remarkable about it, actually, is the number of different directions things are coming from. Uh, I focus on the biological space. And so uh, a major problem in some places is a shortage of organs for transplant. But people are working on it in so many different directions. People are trying to fix the organs that people already have and repair them. People are trying to grow human organs in a laboratory. People are trying to grow human organs in pigs. People are trying to grow pig organs that can be used in humans. People are trying to make mechanical organs. There are five or six different plausible alternatives, none of which was really plausible 20 or 30 years ago. I don't know which one's going to work. I don't know whether any of them's going to work. But the possibilities and the breadth of the possibilities is, is really uh, sweeping.
1: Right. So, so you mentioned on how technology's growth is enabling possibly 3D printing of organs, maybe xenotransplantation. Just a couple of years back, India, I mean, uh, the economy was not so good. I mean, just possibly 20, 25 years down the line, it was quite bad. I mean, you know, the access to knowledge was not there? Then suddenly, there's this company which came, its geo, and gave internet and phones, cell phones, smartphones, dirt cheap. What mm. that did was completely democratized knowledge. And what that has done is like you know, you don't necessarily now need to you know sit out of L.A. You know, you could be you could be sitting out of a small rural town in in, in India if you have the desire and intent you could sit from any part of the world and create, you know, the most fascinating thing. And I, and I, you mentioned the breadth of possibilities have, have really expanded. And I guess that's what that's the change, which I am like really, really super excited for. And, and that's the reason I, I, I do this podcast. You know? so, so your field is biology, genetics, you know. So w- would you like to start with CRISPR? You know, Because that's one, something which has gone the most news recently. So what is CRISPR-Cas9 genetic editing? And what do you think it's going to do to mankind? Uh, what it's doing right now and what, what it could do in the next, possibly this decade?
0: So CRISPR is a tool and all scientific revolutions, I think, really at heart are about tools. Sometimes the tools are physical tools. Sometimes the tools are intellectual. Calculus was a tool that led to great transformations. CRISPR is also an interesting tool in that it's not the first tool we've had that can do what it does, but it's cheaper, faster, easier, um, better, more accurate, in all sorts of ways. So CRISPR-Cas9 was invented by an unknown bacterium about 3 billion years ago. Its use as a tool for humans in manipulating biology was mostly invented by Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, although like all scientific discoveries these days, it was a whole village that was involved in it, competing villages that were involved in it. If there's a stretch of DNA that is A, 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 C, 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 T, and you want to replace it with A, 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 C, 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 G, one piece of the CRISPR construct will find A, 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 C, 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 T, and bind to it, hold on to it. The Cas9 part. And there's also Cas13 and Cas12 and CFP1 and a whole bunch of different proteins associated with the CRISPR part, then cuts that out. And a third thing you can do is add the piece of DNA you want to the whole construct. So it finds the piece you don't like, it cuts out the piece you don't like, and it adds the piece you want. The finding is really, really accurate. The cutting out is very accurate the replacing is not as accurate yet so there's room for improvement we've been able to edit dna since the early 1970s actually uh, a friend of mine paul berg here at stanford won a nobel prize for recombinant dna back then so right now 16 year olds are learning how to do crispr it's not that hard it's a fascinating uh, tool. People are figuring out lots of uses for it. It's kind of like the the Swiss Army knife, the knife that has 17 different blades and functions. Um, but its main use for finding, cutting, and replacing DNA is powerful and is being used all over the world because it's cheap and it's easy.
1: You said this tool is in the hand of 16 years old we are tinkering with the source code of life and and there is obviously a certain section of people which has always been and will always say that you cannot play god but then there is that other section of brave people who are the front movers the first movers who challenge the odds and and build and create things which transforms uh, ma- mankind so so yes so that's the reason i do this podcast and and you know i create awareness and educate people on how technology is creating transformation but obviously i also make them understand that with everything good there is is a bad side so since you are specializing in, in the ethical and moral space subhash Mukhyopadhyaya, he he was uh, an indian doctor who created the world's second And India's first IVF uh, baby. Now, he, yeah, so he was tormented by the Indian government and society for playing God. He had to commit suicide. Now, Yankoi, he created the world's first CRISPR edited twin. Now, there is an article which claims that more than 60 people, including Nobel laureates, knew or suspected what he was doing before it became public, but conveniently took the stand of condemning Yankui post the public outrage. Do you think that the future generation will be pissed with a double talking geneticist? And do you see the moral, ethical outcry and regulation possibly slowing down innovation?
0: So I'll take the second part of the question first. I do think moral concerns, regulatory concerns, legal concerns will slow down innovation. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. I want innovation slowed down in some areas. I want innovation in biological warfare slowed down. I want innovation in nuclear proliferation slowed down. I want innovation in people using CRISPR on their fellow humans slowed down, not stopped by any means, but done in a way that is likely more likely to be safe and effective. Hu Zhongkui thought he was going to be acclaimed. He thought he was going to be viewed as a savior figure. I think he probably still thinks he's Galileo and in the future people will look kindly at him. I actually strongly disagree. I think what he did was criminally reckless because with, not, with, with almost no evidence about whether this was safe to do in humans or not, he brought three babies into the world. Two that we knew about in November of 2018, one we learned about later. The risks to those babies for the first time this procedure was used in human embryos were enormous. He actually knew by the time he transferred those embryos into their mother's uterus that what he had done hadn't worked the way he had intended it to. And that for one of the babies, it really hadn't worked at all. And he did it anyway. So I think there is a there's a line between audacious and reckless. Between farsighted and foolish, that is always hard to draw and sometimes gets redrawn with the passage of time. But to me, at least, uh, clearly broke that line. So I think he should be, is, should be, and I suspect in the future will be condemned, not for what he did so much, but for when he did it, given the risks. That were seen at the time, and the relatively minimal benefits to the children involved. Now, you raise an interesting question about the people who knew whether he did it or not. Uh, I've never, I've heard the number sixty uh, used. I've never seen a list of sixty. But there's people. an article
1: on Science Mag which says that.
0: I do know of at least ten or twelve academics, uh, mainly in the United States. Three of them at Stanford. As my book says, I think that was wrong. I think they should have told somebody. Most of them, almost all of them, say they condemned it at the time. They told them it was a bad idea. They said, don't do this. So I don't think there's an inconsistency there with them later saying this was a bad idea. I propose in the book, we need two things. We need first, a broad statement that an aspirational goal should be. When somebody hears about really bad science, really unethical science, they should report it, that that is something that's an ethical precept we should inculcate in scientists. Scientists should accept the need to do that in spite of their otherwise concerns about confidentiality. And so one of the Stanford people who um, knew about it, uh, he was at a Uh, He came to a meeting I held, a a panel discussion of this uh, I held at Stanford, and he said, you know, I, I wish I had told somebody, but who would I have told? I could tell the Stanford people, but they didn't have any authority in China. I didn't know who to tell in China. So I think we should both make it a goal for people to inform, but also create a mechanism that makes it less difficult. That mechanism... be run by the WHO. It could be run by uh, national science academies. I think something that's international and probably non-governmental is most likely to work. But I don't really, I mean, I don't care about the details so much. I just think we need to set up a way so that scientists both know that they should report something and have a way to do it.
1: Right, right. So, you know what? Do you think Our moral and ethical stand changes over time. Because, you know, when we had the first IVF kid, obviously the church completely condemned it, the the world condemned it, society condemned it. But right now we've got 8 million babies. And another thing, you know, I mean, not many people know that Bell Gibson's father uh, was really sick at the age of 95. And Bell Gibson uh, took his father to Mayo Clinic and he contacted Dr. Neil Raiyden, who came to a conclusion that adult mesenchymal stem cell treatment could be a solution, which was not FDA approved then. So they flew out to Panama to undergo the treatment, which really did wonders for Senior uh, Gibson. So so it, 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 it's like, it's a little weird that why was that not condemned? And do we conveniently choose on things which is easy to Uh, And does moral, ethical stand or society stand change over time?
0: Yes and no. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, You look back even 200 years ago, and what our ancestors almost everywhere did uh, included some really appalling things that today we would find completely unacceptable and stomach turning. In that sense, yes, our moral instincts, our, our views about what's appropriate or not, has changed. It's changed you know, tremendously even in my lifetime, which is not that long. Um, I look at my country and I see changes in uh, civil rights with respect particularly to African Americans. I see changes in the role of women. The, mm-hmm. the one that has been fastest and most surprising to me has been the acceptance of gay and lesbian people, which happened basically overnight here so yes our views change does the underlying morality change (sighs) that's above my pay grade (laughs) i don't know the answer to that it depends on what you think on where you think morality comes from if you think it came down from mount sinai on 10 commandments on stone tablets you probably think it doesn't change although the applications change if you think it's a product of complicated cultural um, cultural processes, then like all cultural processes, it does change and evolves. Um, And by evolve, I don't necessarily mean gets better. Evolve just, it changes. So we do have a tendency to immediately condemn something that is new in a sensitive area. Uh, So baby making, that's pretty sensitive. IVF was pretty new. There was a lot of condemnation. And today it's Widely accepted. It's paid for by health plans in many countries. Uh, it is, I think, eight million is an estimate from a couple of years ago. I mean, right now, more than two percent, about two percent of the babies in the West are born as a result of IVF. And in other countries, as we see the countries becoming richer and more people being able to access the technology, the numbers go up there as well. So it's gone from being Condemned as unnatural and eerie and test tube babies to being um, an accepted, wonderful adjunct of modern medicine. However, if Louise Brown, the first IVF baby, had been born with a serious disability,
1: I don't know what would have happened. Yeah, it would have been a different matter. I,
0: I think, I mean, we, we saw in the US, in the case of gene therapy, really the field being put back five to 10 years by the tragic death of, a, of an 18 year old volunteer in a gene therapy trial, a kid named Jesse Gelsinger. So <laughs> there's always some um, chance and luck if Louise Brown had been born with serious problems, we might not have, we almost certainly would not have 8 million IVF babies. Would we have any? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, chance happens to us all. Right,
1: yeah, so that's an interesting way to look at things, you know, because, yes, I mean, we know so little about, you know, everything, you know, I mean, we're trying to uh, understand space and and beyond, and we're trying to also understand our inward space as in uh, our self, you know, our genetic makeup, our cognitive structure, and there is so much, so little that we know, and when we do get to know our entire the a uh, cognitive structure or, or what our uh, 3 billion base pairs is doing and, and its role uh, in how the uh, entire body I, I think that would be magical and, and that that's what excites me that we're we just kind of scratching the surface you know so it, it, ivf now from ivf we're moving to in vitro gametogenesis and and you have written a book Based on that, the end of sex and the future of human reproduction. Can you unpack that for my listeners, please?
0: Although I do have to note, we don't yet have in vitro gametogenesis, at least not in humans. We do in mice. The mice don't seem to care very much. Uh, But people are working on it in humans. It's not available yet in humans. Here's the basic idea. Um, Thanks to the advances over the last 40 years or so in stem cell research, particularly the work of Shinya Yamanaka around 2006-2007 in creating what are called induced pluripotent stem cells, we can now take skin cells, turn them into these early undifferentiated very uh, cells that have the potential to become any cell type. These are called, because you have to have a long fancy name with an acronym, induced pluripotent stem cells, or iPSCs. They are like the famous or infamous, depending on your perspective, human embryonic stem cells, except you don't need to take, you don't need to destroy an embryo to get them. You take them from somebody's skin. The excitement about IPSCs is that you could take, say, some of your skin cells. Um, I'm sorry you've had a heart attack. The good news is you've survived. The bad news is your marathon times just have not returned to the world record challenging times you no doubt were running the marathon in Um, because your heart has scar tissue. Your heart muscle has scar tissue, which it will not fix. If we take your iPSCs from your skin, And we convince them to become cardiomyocytes, heart muscle cells, and we put them in your body. They should go to your heart, go into the scar tissue, start working and improve your marathon times. They're trying to use these iPSCs to repair, replace, remake damaged and, and dysfunctional poorly working human tissue. And the really exciting thing about this is if I take your skin cells and use them to make your iPSCs and use them to make your cardiomyocytes and put them back in your body, your immune system doesn't attack. It says, welcome home because it is you. So you, you avoid all the many problems in uh, organ transplants coming from the immune system. Well, if iPSCs can make cell types, can make all cell types, they can make brain cells, they can make liver cells, they can make skin cells, they can make heart cells. Eggs and sperm are just two more cell types. And this has been done in mice, but not yet in people, though there are some labs that are getting closer. We could take your skin cells. We could turn them into induced pluripotent stem cells. We could turn them into eggs and sperm. Right now, the way that's being done in mice is complicated, probably expensive, tricky. We'll need to figure out ways to do it better. But once you get it, once you know, it can be done in one way, figuring out better ways to do it gets a lot easier. The hardest step is the first step. Why would you do this? Because there are millions and millions of couples who desperately want to have children And the term that often gets used is children of their own. Many people can't because of an accident, because of a childhood illness. So um, there's an illness called mumps. That's a childhood disease that often leads uh, boys to grow up to be sterile, to be infertile. Could have been an accident. Could have been a birth, a congenital problem from birth. Could have been, in the case of women in particular, age. So many women who did make eggs and could have had genetic children are now of an age where their eggs don't work anymore and they can't make kids. That's, I think, I suspect more than millions, tens of millions of couples around the world would want to use this to make their children that were genetically theirs. And if we can make the technology work, it should be relatively easy and even relatively cheap. The attacks on it will come. I'm sure the Catholic Church will continue to oppose it because it opposes all sorts of intervention and reproduction. I'm sure others will oppose it for religious or moral reasons. But I don't think that's going to stand up to the desperation. And, and for many people, it really is desperation, the the powerful drive that many people have to have genetic children, I think is, is a politically winning argument. Now it gets a little trickier. What if I could take cells from you and make them into eggs? There's some plausible ways to do that. Why would we do that? Well, maybe you're part of a gay couple. And you both want to have children that are genetically yours. You make, you take sperm from one member, you take, you make eggs from the other. Uh, I live near San Francisco, and San Francisco, that would be viewed as an incredibly wonderful thing. In Saudi Arabia, not so much. In Uganda, not so much. In North Dakota, in the United States, not so much, or Mississippi. So um, there will be some controversies. I think that use. Is likely to win out. I, 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 th- I think that I think that the in most places the political power of people who just want to have their own healthy kids will be a successful argument. My book, The End of Sex, takes that another step. On one side, we've got stem cell technology that should lead to us being able to make kidneys or make. repair heart muscle or make eggs and sperm. On the other hand, we've got genetic technologies which now make it pretty cheap and easy to read the whole genome. Now we don't know what most of it means. We're still learning to decipher it. Uh, We know what some of the words are and how they what happens when the words are misspelled, but for most of it we don't, but we're learning more. There is a process that has been around for over 30 years called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis or PGD. To do PGD, you have to do IVF. And with PGD, you take the embryo, usually after about five days, five or six days after fertilization, and you take a few cells from it. It's not enough to damage the embryo. You then do a genetic test on those cells and you figure out what DNA those cells have. Do they have the variations that will lead the baby to have cystic fibrosis? Do they have the variations that will lead the baby to have beta thalassemia or ultimately grow up to an adult with Huntington disease or have light colored eyes or dark colored eyes? We can tell that this has been in use, clinical use for over 30 years, and it is at least relatively safe and effective. The problem with it is, twofold. You have to use IVF, which is expensive, unpleasant, and difficult. At least it's expensive for everybody. It's unpleasant and difficult, mainly for the woman, because egg harvest is unpleasant and difficult. Sperm harvest, not so much. Um, So you have to use IVF, and you've got a limited number of embryos, because when you do egg harvest, you get somewhere between usually zero and 25 eggs, not all of which become embryos. If you can make eggs, from skin cells, then a couple could make 100 embryos or 1,000 embryos. Because if you're making them in a cell line, how many eggs do you want, do you get? How many eggs do you want? You could literally make millions of eggs. You'd make, say, 100 embryos, you'd do a whole genome sequence on each one of those embryos and you'd tell the parents, okay, embryo number one likely to be taller than average, greater risk of type 2 diabetes, likely to be a little better than average at math, you know, likely to have a, a wide nose, whatever they want to know. And you go through the 100 embryos and you say to the parents, which ones do you want? That is the future I foresee in the book, The End of Sex. It's a combination of stem cell research leading to in vitro gametogenesis, IVG, and genetics research leading to whole genome sequencing and um, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, or PGD. Uh, I think it's going to happen. I think in 20 to 40 years, in places where people have good health coverage, in most places where people have good health care, most babies will be born this way. Not all. People will still get pregnant the old-fashioned way out of religious conviction, out of romantic ideas or because they're teenagers and that's what teenagers do. Um, but I think many people will choose this path. How many, uh, and, and why will they choose it? It's not that they want super babies. This will not give you super babies. This will not give you the X-Men or Superman or anything else. They want healthy babies. Right. You know, um, there are 6,000 genetic diseases that show up early, that can be detected by PGD. Happily, they're all rare. But when you multiply rare times 6,000, that's about 1% to 2% of all births. I mean, 1% to 2%, that's a relatively small percentage risk, unless, of course, it happens to you. In which case, it's devastating if your child is that Has that rare genetic disease, uh, Tay Sachs syndrome, Lesh Nihan syndrome, 6,000 of them. And you could avoid that through this. And I think that's why people will do it.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we are getting into an exciting world. Plus, it it can be scary, exciting in the space because, I mean, you you can now give a power to maybe like a gay couple or a single human to kind of produce. Uh, a, a baby with maybe like an XL and a sperm cell. That's so very exciting. And then you also said the, the genetically edited babies, you know, which the reason should be healthy babies because, you know, there are so many people in the world who are suffering. For example, I'll give you, there's this friend of mine, a family friend. Now the baby uh, she is, I think, roughly around. Uh, I think she's five or six years old, and, and she has an HNRNPu gene mutation. The gene, which is new, mm-hmm. uh, responsible for neurodevelopment, what that has done is that mm-hmm. she's got uh, developmental delay, learning difficulties, her speech yep. is affected. Plus, she gets seizures. You know, and, and 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 I know her mother very well. Father's working abroad, and and there is so much pain and suffering, you know, with this, if we can take the pain and suffering out from the world, it would be so fantastic. Now, so so, could you, you know, unpack this for my audience as and be a little bit more specific on... What are the benefits that you see right now so that the ones, you know, you can weigh against the benefits versus the harms So people can see that, oh, this is a technology which can create so much benefits to mankind. So could you kind of like uh, unpack this for what uh, genetic editing CRISPR can do for healthcare?
0: Sure. I want to do it in two parts. There's embryo selection, which is the subject of the end of sex and is… Right. PGD. And then there's embryo editing, which is the subject of CRISPR people, and is what He Jiankui did. Embryo selection allows you to know in advance which embryos are going to get certain diseases or have certain traits. Now, most of the things we really care about, well, many of the things we care about in terms of personality and skills and talents. They've got some genetic basis, but it's hundreds of genes, and we don't understand it. But things like straightforward genetic diseases, lesch disease, beta thalassemia, causing enormous pain and suffering, um, we do understand those. And we could say with high confidence, this embryo would have this disease. This embryo wouldn't. Now, you're not curing the embryos, you're selecting the embryo that would not have the disease and you are leading to healthier babies and presumably happier families. That's the embryo selection. The embryo editing would say, okay, hey, this embryo has got two copies of the gene that, uh, of the version of the gene that makes for beta thalassemia. Rather, we, we will continue to use this embryo, but we will edit it so that it has normal genes. I don't think that's going to be very common, because for the most part, you can reach the same result through selection. You just make a bunch of embryos and pick the ones that are safe, rather than doing an additional expensive risky procedure of gene editing. So I think for the most part, gene editing isn't going to be used that much, but there are a few exceptions. Let's say that two people with thalassemia are healthy enough and live long enough and fall in love with each other and want to have children together. Any child of theirs genetically would have thalassemia because the only gene versions the parents have to give the child are the versions with thalassemia. If they want to have a healthy kid, they would need to use gene editing. How many couples like that are there in the world? I don't think very many, but probably not zero. I think they'd have a good argument if it's safe to use gene editing. The other big issue with gene editing, and the thing that I think drives much of the opposition is the fear by some, the the desire by others for enhancement, that we will make super babies. We'll have really smart kids. We'll have really athletic kids. We'll have really good at math or at music kids. Um, That might happen. And for that, you'd probably need gene editing because you'd probably have to change lots of genes, not just pick one or two gene versions, but we don't know how to do it. And I think particularly with these behavioral traits, they're so complicated. So many genes are involved. So much experience is involved, so much chance is involved in how our brains develop. I don't know that we'll ever be able to do it. And I don't think, I think it's fairly clear we won't be able to do it in the next few decades. So I'm less worried about that. And that's the side that triggers the fears of dystopian super humans or a caste system with the the genetic lumpenproletariat and the genetic elite. I think that makes for interesting science fiction, but at least for the next 30, 40, 50 years, it's science fiction. What happens in 30, 40, 50 years? We'll have to wait and see. But it's not going to be my world in 50 years. It may not even be your world. It'll be our kids' and our grandkids' world, and they'll decide. Um, We can't can't answer all their questions. We can't um, solve all their problems, uh, nor should we try. Right. I don't think it's going to be a problem in our time, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, but but the outlook of not solving the the problem of the future generation is not something which I obviously do, I mean do not. Uh, uh,
0: uh, I mean, I, I don't want to take because, that too far. <laughs> I mean, like climate change,
1: right.
0: that's a that's a problem that we have created, particularly right. my generation of Westerners has created for the rest of the world to come we should try we we need to fix that <laughs> we should work on that but there are some things that are far enough away and uncertain enough and where it's the uncertainty is not just about the science what will we be able to do and how but the uncertainty is what people will think about it my morals my reactions today may well not be that of my great-grandchildren 80 years from now, and the dead hand of my views should not try to control what they'll do in 80 years.
1: There are, there are so many scientists, researchers working on human longevity. So I hope and I wish and pray that maybe both of us can live more a longer life and, and healthily. Now, since you spoke about the religion and and church conversation. I I just wanted to bring up something which is like philosophical and maybe like a scary question. Now, so DNA is is supposed to be the source code of life, life, right? Mm. It it determines everything from a skin color, height, you know, which disease, which we are most likely to catch, you know, in in the near future. So what can we predict about a human looking at a DNA. What I mean by that, it's what's the level of determinism encoded onto a DNA?
0: It depends. If you have inherited the DNA that leads to Tay-Sachs disease, you will be dead by the time you're three, before you're three. That's completely deterministic. You will not get educated. You will never learn to talk. You will never learn to walk you will have a life that is short, painful, and miserable. That's completely determined. Once you get away from really powerful genes with really bad effects, it's much less determined. So um, you know, if you look at a picture of a family reunion from my family, you will conclude that white hair runs in my family. Uh, but I could buy something that would turn my hair brown or turn my hair blonde or turn my hair black. I could do that. It's not fate. Um, I, if I had been born in India rather than in the United States, I rather suspect I would have had a much different life. If you had been born in the United States rather than in India, I don't know whether the big trajectory of your life would have changed very much, but certainly many parts of it would have changed. If my mother had been hit by a bus when i was two years old my life would have been deeply different my mother lost her mother when she was six her mother died young um that changed everything and it had nothing to and it wasn't from a dna it wasn't from a genetic disease so our lives are a mixture. dna sometimes is really determinative but rarely sometimes it's an influence the genes say I'm likely to be tall, but it doesn't tell us how tall I'm likely to be. That's affected heavily by what I got to eat when I was a kid and any accidents or illnesses I might've had. So our fates are sometimes in part determined by our genes. They're heavily influenced by our genes, but they're also heavily influenced by, and sometimes completely determined by many other things. I mean, if you were um, a baby um, living in Bhopal at the time of the the disaster, disaster. tragedy, Tragedy. uh, you know, I'm not even sure what word to use for the terrible events there, Mm -hmm. um, and you died as a result, your life was completely determined by the accident of geography, you happened to be living there at the wrong time. Your genes had nothing to do with it, but it was also completely determined. There's nothing you could do about it. So yeah, our life is a combination of things that are determined and things that are uncertain. And some of the things that are determined are genetic. It's of the
1: Would you like to talk about xenotransplantation? Because just recently, A bit. Pro, uh, Professor Juan Carlos Espis, Espisua del Monte from Salt Institute seems to have created the first of its kind human monkey embryonic cell. Now, how excited or nervous are you of this breakthrough?
0: so on a scale of one to ten where ten is most excited and one is completely bored um, this is about in terms of the science it's about a four and in terms of an the ethics it's about a three or a four i think i'm unusual i think most people would rank it higher Um, the important thing to remember about this is they they took a monkey embryo and they added some human cells, some of these induced pluripotent stem cells. And they followed the embryos as long as 19 days. Some but not all of the embryos had the human cells continue to survive and multiply before they ultimately died. Um, and important breakthrough. People have not been able to do that successfully with sheep or with pigs. They've been able to do it really well with mice and rats. So mouse cells will work well in rats and rat cells will work well in mice. But what Belmonte wants to do is grow human kidneys in pigs. Uh, and it's an exciting, po- it's one of the many exciting possibilities that's out there. It may work, it may not. But when he puts human cells into pig embryos, hardly any of the human cells survive. One in a million, one in, one in 100,000, not enough. So this experiment was to say, Maybe it'll work better if we do two animals that are more closely evolutionarily linked, macaques and humans. And maybe we can learn from that tricks that will make it work better with pigs. The first part worked. It did work better with macaques than it did with pigs. The second part, we don't know. Have they learned anything that will allow them to make it in pigs? We don't know yet, but it's one step toward that. There are so many steps between this experiment And growing kidneys in pigs to save human lives—that I'm not. It's a necessary. It looks like it's a necessary step. It's certainly not sufficient. That's why I'm not more um, more excited about the science of it. I think it's a a useful step on the ethics side of it. You know, there's cells in a dish. (laughs) It's an embryo that at 19 days. Uh, and really it's only six days of normal development and then another 12 days in a very odd uh, non-unnet in an environment that's sufficiently unnatural that i don't know how much it tells us about what would happen in a real uh embryo in a real womb um it's not gonna lead a revolt of all simians against humans it's not the beginning of beyond the planet of the apes If they had transferred those embryos into the uterus of a monkey and living things had been born, then I'm much more ethically interested and concerned. Um, Really, maybe as much for the monkey as for humans. And what would it be and how should we treat it?
1: Do you see a rogue scientist from maybe China, Russia, or or somewhere else trying to? kind of do something like that. Because obviously it's it's really great for mankind because there's millions of people who are dying on a regular basis, waiting for another person to die to get an organ transplant. Right. So then. then
0: But, but but you're not going to be able to do that by making monkeys with that have human cells in them. That part to, to have that monkey come to term, nobody's talking about taking kidneys out of the monkeys. Plus you need to figure out, are you actually going to get a human kidney or a monkey kidney or a half human, half monkey kidney That's another complication with this whole story. A rogue scientist might do it. There's no good reason for him to do it. But uh, He jong showed that there are rogue scientists who will do things without good reason. It's a little tricky, though, in most places. He was in the unusual circumstance of having a lot of money he could use. Um, He didn't have to get grants on specific things. Usually, scientists have to say, I need this money. Here's what I intend to do with it. Here's why I intend to do it. Give me this money so I can do X. So somebody else has to say, well, yeah, X is worth doing. Who had enough private money from some of his companies and from money that the government had given him with no strings attached that he could do this. Um, it's, it's not that easy to be a rogue. It helps if you're independently wealthy, uh, but it, it could happen um, again. I don't think it's going to lead to a revolt of all non-human primates on the planet and the overthrow of human domination, Um, but it would be disturbing. And if if it were to happen, um, it should only happen after lots and lots of public discussion.
1: I sincerely appreciate you giving time being part of the podcast and sharing your insight and knowledge with me and my audience. So, so so to end it would you like to kind of predict what the world would look like in the next 10 years when uh, genetic editing and crispr and, and and all of these technologies kind of advance what you what what would be the picture that you would like to paint of the world in the next 10 years
0: So first Inertia is the strongest force in human events. In 10 years, the world will look much the way it does today, but not entirely. I think the genetics revolution will continue and will have led to more treatments for rare genetic diseases. We'll see more gene therapies that will help a few people. It's, you know, we'd be much, we'd help far more people if we came up with a cure for malaria, Uh, but helping people, the the small number of people with bad genetic diseases, helping them is a good thing. We'll be able to do that. I actually think in terms of human reproduction, we won't see much change. We'll see more selection, more pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, but not on a huge scale because IVF is a real rate limiting factor. It, It really limits the number of people who are willing to do it. Where I think CRISPR is likely to make a big difference soon is in non-humans. We're really appropriately concerned about the risks of messing around with human babies and humans. We're less concerned about the risks of messing around with uh, goat babies or uh, dog babies and certainly not rat babies or mosquito babies or tree babies. Um, And so it's much easier to do that, you don't need an IVF lab to modify the uh, a cockroach. Um, so I think that the democratization of of CRISPR will be felt not so much in humans because there are risks and costs and rules and laws and uh, other lots of other things you need, but in non-humans. And right now, I think the world it does not have the world in, as it as a whole, and individual countries, including my own, do not have good regulations in place to make sure, or at least to try to make sure, that CRISPR and non-humans is used in ways that are safe, effective, and helpful, as opposed to ways that are, are risky, dangerous, and cruel. We need to do that. Right, right, right.
1: Thank you. Thank you, doctor, for being part of the show, sharing your insights. And I will take the the line which you said in the beginning of the conversations. You know, technology is expanding of possibilities, the breadth of possibilities. We're living in exciting time. All these technologies that we have are giving us the opportunity and a choice to make the right decision of creating a better future. Obviously, it it is on us to take that tool, look at it with a lens very carefully, because technology is a double-edged sword. It can create huge benefits to mankind, but it can also, the other side, can create complete disruption. We have to walk in that thread, a thin line, and making sure that we take everyone along and create a future that's beneficial for all. And I guess that's that should be the goal for everyone because the world, I think, is post-COVID, I think it's, it's become a very... I mean, I don't know whether I'm using the right word, whether it's a great place, but I think for the first time, I think we are all in it together. You know, we've kind of understood that this is one boat that we are sailing on and we need to break our silos, come together, collaborate and build a better future. And on that note, to my listeners, if you like what you see in here, please press the subscribe button until next time. See you guys. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Really appreciate this. eh?
0: Enjoyed it.